This week on In-Depth, the greatest big wave surfer ever, Laird Hamilton. I continue to not be too content to just go, okay, that's it, I'm good, I've reached my goal. I think it'll always be something that, that's a continual pursuit. Over the years, Hamilton has conquered waves once considered unrideable, but decided early on he would never compete professionally. Instead, he spent his life defying odds and innovating techniques to push the sport to new heights. Are we going to be torn from limb to limb? We just didn't have any idea because we had had no experience in that level of surf and really no one had. We visit Hamilton on his home island of Kauai. He reflects on growing up as an outsider and his aggressive personality. A little reckless, little jumping off high cliffs, throw all the chairs out the window kind of thing, you know? And how it's affected both his surfing and relationship with wife and retired volleyball pro, Gabrielle Reese. Like I just needed to focus on, hey, what, is, what am I doing uh, that's having an, an impact on this relationship like that? All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So uh, a lot of people would look at you and see this big, strong surfer and think, you know, growing up, you're the last person that would ever be given a hard time. But it was kind of anything but that. Uh, take me back to early days here in Hawaii. How much were you bullied? Well, I started, I think, in the first day of school. I think, I think the first day of school, I got uh, in an altercation with a, with a giant Hawaiian kid. And uh, he was the biggest, the other biggest kid in the class. And, and you know, that was the beginning, was like kindergarten. It started in kindergarten and, and then just worked its way on through middle school or, you know, all the way to high school. Until eventually, I, I think I just got to the point where I got tired of it and thought maybe I shouldn't be at this school. <laughs> and, and explain, like, w like, why they would do it and what would actually happen? Yeah, well, happen. I, I mean, listen, it, it, it was real simple. Uh, the reason why I was kind of picked out, picked on and picked out was I was just different. And, and my difference was that I was blonde and light skinned and, uh, which could have led them to think that I might've been, uh, you know, a descendant of Captain Cook, the guy who <laughs> ruined the Hawaiian islands. <laughs> I would always sit in the back of the class against in the corner so that I could see what was coming. I still do that now. I go to restaurants with Gabby for dinner and I'm, I just always want to sit in the back of the restaurant in the corner so I can see everything. It's just like an ongoing, uh, an ongoing thing. And you know, it's not anything I think um, that, uh, that many people haven't experienced in their life. It's just something that, that they might not connect to me. I think that's the right. confusing part. You look at me, you think, ah, surfer guy and the beach and, you know, how is there any, uh, you know, kind of racism or any kind of, and, and it's, 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 you know, it, it's, it goes, it goes across all, you know, all platforms. So why would you stay away from the school bathroom? You didn't want to get caught in there. That was a vulnerable place to, to go to. And you might get, you might get caught by, you know, a group of guys that would try to maybe plunge your, plunge you, use you as a plunger. Did that ever happen to you? Um, it, 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 they attempted it. Okay. I was, I was, uh, I think I had a, a, a pretty uh, good ability to, to defend myself and then, and then I also made them work for it. So it, it stopped being fun, I think, with me because it was like, yeah, this, this is gonna be way too much work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, you, and you might pay too. <laughs> What happened one time when the teacher threatened to wash your mouth out with soap? Oh, that was early on. I think I said, you know, I, I said some profanity in the class and uh, the teacher said, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And I said, that's an interesting thought. Let me save you the trouble. I, and the bathroom was right next to the classroom. I just stepped out, grabbed a bar of soap and I, and I proceeded to just bite a big old chunk of, of that thick old bar soap and just and just eat it in front of her. And she kind of was like, well, this is going to be a problem. You know, he's not going to be able to be disciplined very easily. And that was just, I think that was part of just, you know, who I, who I, who I am. <laughs> and didn't I hear you then end up like tossing all the desks out the window? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and then writing some bad stuff on the chalkboard with well, like what, char charcoal. Just, just, uh, again, I think that was the, the, re the rebel, like the rebellion in me was and and to try to 
divert the attention, divert the focus, like, you know, put it on the teacher and, and then everybody would shift their attention like, wow, what are you going to do to him now that he did that? And that would just take it off of me, even if it was just for a moment. And so I was trying to like figure it out, you know, figure out how to survive in that environment. And my instincts told me, hey, just do radical things and put it on them and see, you know, let, and everybody would shift their focus for a little while. And then it'd go back on you when the principal came and you'd run or whatever happened. <laughs> um, what happened on what ultimately ended up being your last day of school? Um, I got my head slammed in a desk and so I threw the kid out. Um, uh, I pushed him out the window. It was just, it was the one story, of course. But I just, I grabbed the guy, slammed him against the thing and then I threw him out the, the classroom window and, uh, but that was after my face got slammed in the desk. I was defending myself and, and we went to the principal's office and, uh, she suspended us both. And I was just like, I was, I, I'm good with this. This, this is, this system's served me as about as, as long as it, you know, as I needed to. And then I just, you know, I had to go to work. My mom was a single parent at the time, signed me out of school. Uh, and, and then I just, I went to work as, as little as I could, given that, you know, I, I'm a surfer. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you're working, you're uh, surfing, um, and you're also doing a little bit of modeling. Tell about uh, uh, posing with Brooke Shields yeah. as a 17-year-old yeah, and how that went. That was a very unique uh, opportunity. Um, I had been exposed to uh, some modeling. Um, there was a, a Luomo Vogue, Men's Vogue shoot on the island. And, uh, and there's a famous uh, sports illustrator photographer named Walter Yost who took pictures of me from a helicopter out surfing and then one of the fashion guys saw it and said hey yeah let's see him um, and so then I shot some stuff with uh, this guy Barry McKinley who eventually introduced me to Bruce Weber and then Bruce Weber uh, had the opportunity to to pick someone to go shoot with Brooke for the first time be the first guy to shoot with Brooke and Brooke was a huge deal then absolutely yeah, absolutely. And he, he called me and said, hey, you know, uh, would you be interested um, in, in shooting with Brooke? Uh, and I said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I was still in a bubble anyway, too. I live in the jungle. So I was like, I, maybe I wasn't, you know, it's like Brooke was Brooke, but maybe she wasn't Brooke to me. She was uh -huh. just like, and maybe that's why he wanted me to, 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 uh, to come there. But yeah, he, he asked me to come to Cabo and shoot with Brooke. And I was like, yeah, I would, I, it, of course. I mean, listen, all and of it was... And was it just a shooter? Did you end up going out after that, or was it... Well, well Brooke and I are friends to this day. Uh -huh. So we, 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 we had a connection that we, you know, that, that is on, ongoing. And, and uh, y y you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, I, I'm a fan of, of, of Brooke just because of the kind of person she is. I think we had that opportunity to spend some time together that allowed us to actually see people for real, you know, because sometimes you don't get that, especially with people like that, mm -hmm. you know. And so, uh, but yeah, that was a, that was a, uh, one of those things, you know, one of those, listen, I, I was doing anything I could to subsidize my surfing and, and excavation, you know, the hourly rate was a little less than, you know, shooting with Brooke. <laughs> How did you learn to surf in the first place? Well, I, I was, you know, I was pushed in at a young age. You know, my mom was born in the surf culture in Southern California. And so I was just, you know, one of her boyfriends used to just push me in when I was, you know, a little kid, two, three years old, I was pushed onto waves and everybody around me was surfing and all the men were surfing. And so it was kind of like, you know, that's what you did. Like, it's like if you grew up in a town that played baseball or football or some other sport, you just wanted to be like the men that were the guys. and all the guys that I grew up around with or all the men were surfers. So it was just a natural progression, you know, just, hey, you're, that's what you want to do. You want to be like these, you know, these guys that you look up to. How many times were you rescued by lifeguards growing up? Oh, I've been rescued by lifeguards more times than I could count. I mean, it just, it's an endless number. I mean, I, I was rescued m multiple times a week, sometimes daily. I would be rescued. And what would happen? I, I'd just get rescued, and then they'd send me home, and then I'd be back out there. I mean, I'd be rescued multiple times in a day. They would just, after a while, they got tired of it. They were like, hey, you got to tie him up or something, you know? It's like, well, tie him up and don't let him. And that's literally what happened, though, yeah. too, right? They actually attached a brick yeah, to Yeah, well, my stepdad had a, had a uh, 
an idea to use a hollow tile brick as an anchor and then a, <laughs> and a piece of rope because what normally happened is I would be playing by the shore and then a wave would come up and it would just knock you over and then pull you out and you uh -huh. couldn't get back and so he figured if I was tethered to the to a rock or something that it would be easier for me to and it worked it, it, it definitely helped me but it probably only led me to go deeper and deeper and further and further which eventually led to you know bigger rescues. Ooh, and were you typically <laughs> in trouble when you'd be rescued or, oh, yeah. or is it just No, you? no, I was in trouble. Okay. This 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 beach that I grew up on at Bonsai Pipeline, uh -huh. especially during that time, um, was a dangerous beach. People drowned there all the time. That was that was not a and, and I was young and you know I, I told somebody I think I was scared so often growing up in the surf that that's partially why I have the the disposition that I do in, in the big surf is is I think I went through that. I mean, I think I cultivated that relationship with being scared. I've been scared so many times. That's, and, and when you're young, those, that fear is much greater than when you're older. You know, you're like, yes. scary movies are really scary when you're a kid, and drowning is very scary when you're a kid, and being rescued, is, it's real. Was there an instance that you vividly recall that was kind of the most severe example of getting yourself well, I got, I got rescued by my stepdad, by Bill Hamilton one time, uh, at which time I held on to him and he swam for 20 or 30 minutes and then eventually he got tired and he couldn't swim against the current and we both got pulled um, out to sea, like a substantial uh, distance from the shore. Uh, and because of his exhaustion, I think that upped my fear of what was happening. Uh, and, and then, uh, and then you know, at, at a certain point, I I learned about that the current, you know, comes back. So <laughs> it was both of those. Right. It was extremely scary, but then I also learned something from that that made me ha have a better understanding of of riptides. Did did that cause you to take a step back for a while, or it never was? Yeah, I wasn't good was about taking a step back. That was seemed like those. I mean. What do we say? Hard to discourage, right. <laughs> you know, or almost undiscourageable in that sense. I, I, you know, I think obviously when you have those scary things happen, it does, you know, change your, your, you know, it makes you a little more cautious at moments. But, you know, then you have success, and then that leads to you becoming more courageous again, and it's you know you're back to the curve. Uh, big waves. Um, how rare are truly gigantic waves? Well, I mean, truly gigantic waves can be as rare as once in a lifetime. The, the thing that's interesting about big surf is that once it's past a certain level of, of size, it's big as big. It can be a little bigger or a little less big, but once you're at that one level, if it's 100 or 80 or 150 or whatever that is, it's giant. You know, everybody's always looking, oh, give me the number, give me the number. Like, you don't need a number. What's far, the number is greater than you can, than, than you can endure and that, that, you know, that then, so it's, you know, you have to, I, I prefer looking at it that way. I mean, we've been in surf that's 100 feet. We've been, you know, we know you, there's waves 150 foot high, you know, but, but it's just big as big. You know, I, I always like to describe waves like dogs. You know, you can have a Great Dane, it's all, you know, and then you can have a pit bull and it's little, but it's got big teeth and big jaw and, a, and a, it's extremely aggressive. And that's what waves are like. There's pit bulls and there's Great Danes and there's all the different, kinds of size you can have big gentle ones I mean there are giant ones like mastiffs and you know other things that are big and aggressive and uh, but at a certain level once you get up to a certain size of wave it just the energy and the capacity for it to do harm to you is so great that it doesn't really matter it's like it's you know <laughs> explain what jaws is and it's what a, you recall from your first time writing it it's it's the name of jaws is called piahi but it's a, a location on maui uh and it is one of the largest waves rideable uh, largest waves in the world and and it's a spot that until we started uh surfing it it was it had been you know, r ridden very limited. You know, the, the, there is only a few people that have ever been out there. And, and it, I lived on Maui at the time. Um, I heard about the wave and, and we had developed the technique 
for towing surfers onto giant waves, um, which allowed us to ride you know, bigger waves than had been ridden. And, uh, and that spot was the perfect location. And when we first went out there, we, it was a little bit like uh, kind of you know, going into space, like going to the moon. We didn't know what, what was gonna happen. Are we just gonna go into a vortex and disappear? Are we gonna be torn from limb to limb? We just didn't have any idea because we had had no experience in that level of surf and really no one had. Uh, uh, up until that point. What was the moment that day that made you realize you could do it? Well, we had been building up to that. We had been marching our way up to that. So we had a pretty good idea what we could, you know, what we were capable of, of doing. And I think so that was, it was really a culmination of, of a bunch of different, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different skills that we implemented and we put together. It was, it was the ability to drive the vehicles. It was the ability to be on these small boards. It was uh, just all these pieces came together uh, like some kind of, like a hybrid, like a, like a really great hybrid where you just, everything comes together and kind of creates this whole new thing. August 17th, 2000, Tahiti. Yes. Set the scene. I'm there for a, couple, a week or two and having had some great surf, getting ready to leave friend of mine says, uh, maps look uh, scary. Huge giant storm uh, on, the, on the forecast and, and could be the, you know, a monster swell. So uh, kind of not wanting to, you know, not wanting to miss the opportunity. I, I stayed an extra couple of days and uh, on the third day that the giant swell rolled in at a place called Teahupo and, and just the surf was enormous and uh, all, all the Tahitians and were, were wanting, they wanted to go somewhere else. I was like, well, not today we don't. We're gonna go out here and see if we can ride this thing. And they just, they just thought, well, it's unrideable. You can't ride it, it's impossible. And, um, and we, went, we went and implemented the tow-in technique that we had been using that was so effective in the bigger surf. And at that time we rode the unrideable. It was, it was, and it was really clear and defined that we broke that, that barrier, you know, because some of these other waves, it's a little more ambiguous. Oh, we could have caught that, this, you know, we could, we could disclaim it, but that one was clearly rideable, unrideable, and that was an unrideable swell at that break. And, uh, and we rode, you know, at the time, you know, the heaviest waves in the world. And there's literally no margin for error with that wave, correct? Yeah, yeah well, the, a month before a guy got killed there, like he got his head, his part of his skull ripped off and then died, in the, you know, a couple of days later in the hospital. But uh, yeah, well, that's, that, that breaks on a live coral reef and, and it's, you know, the water's six feet deep. And the way coral reefs grow is they grow in the perfect shape to absorb the wave's energy in the shortest distance possible, which ultimately means that the entire wave will just unload uh, all at once. And that's what it does there. That's why it creates such a big cylindrical shape is because it's, it's all the power of the wave is just getting dissipated in, in this very short distance, and uh, which makes it pretty scary. <laughs> Explain the like mental conflict you were having with yourself as you're riding ride. that wave. I had an instinct to jump off, like jump off, jump off, jump off, jump off, and and then I and then I was like, yeah, but if I jump off, then I can't make it. Like let let me be knocked off, let me let me fall off, but not of my own accord. Don't jump off. And uh, and if you jump off or get knocked off, you're dead anyways. It would be bad. Yeah. Now now you know you could miraculously. Fly around and not touch anything, or you could miraculously fly around and land directly into a, shark, a live coral reef that just rip, rips you, you know, apart. And what's interesting is when you get in those moments where time slows down, you have a, you have time. You have this conversation going on in your head. Like, I mean, the, the wave only takes seven, eight seconds, but you have a full-on like, you know, fifteen-minute debate over whether you should jump off or not. So, and it, it, it stems from the fact is that everything's sped up in those moments, so time slows down. It's like when you shoot slow motion, you know, you speed it up. So your assessment speeds up because your, your body's under high alert, because your body's, like, you're threatened. Why were you overcome with emotion when you got done? It was my life's dream. 
it was like a dream that you that I had that that I wasn't sure existed especially at that point already I had already kind of been doing things and I I wasn't sure if you know if my dreams could come true or not like I wasn't you know at that up until that point it was it wasn't so clear like what I'd been doing and and when I when I was able to survive that I think my I think a lot of it had to do with just my body was really happy that I made it it was like yeah you you <laughs> you made it and you weren't plastered all over the place and so it was a little I was thankful I was thankful for for pulling it off I was thankful for that that even existed what's the closest call you've ever had to which thing dying uh-huh I've had a lot of chances to die for sure. <laughs> I mean, listen, I've had moments in a lot of different ways. You know, I've been lost at sea where I thought that was it. Um, I've, I've fallen in a cornice on a giant glacier in Russia. I thought that was it. Um, I've been stuck in the bottom of a waterfall uh, in, the, in Oregon and pinned on a rock for a while. Thought that was it. Um, I've been held down by a giant wave. Thought that was it. Um, you know, I've had, a, I've had some chances at it. Uh, you know, so I have a pretty good relationship with what it like, what it feels like to be at the spot where you're going to go, well, this is it. That's, this is the, this is it. And then, uh, and then it's not it and you're thankful. Was there a wipeout that was the worst that out of all your instances were, you know, were kind of brushes with death? This was the time where? Well, I mean, I've had a couple. I've had a couple big ones. I've had one foiling where I got pushed down uh, and I was still connected to the board and I pushed into the black, you know, and, and was at the bottom of the ocean connected to this sea anchor and, and... You pushed into the black? Yeah, into the okay. black, like it just goes black. Mm -hmm. So you're down there and uh, part of the reason why it goes black is because the, the, the light reflect, re reflects off the white, mm -hmm. so the white reflects the light and so it turns completely black. Like, so you're down in the black, in the darkness, and you're standing there on the board, you know, 30 or 40 feet under the water, wondering how it's gonna be to get, and if you, if you get back up, is the next one gonna land on you? I got hit so hard that it drove me through the water that it split my lips, because my lips were pulled, you know, my, face, my skin on my face was pulled and where it split my lips open. Um, well, and, and to give this context, I read um, a 70-foot wave would be powerful enough to tear a 50-ton boulder out of the ground and hurl it 150 feet. Um, when you first started towing surfing, explain how much you practiced rescues. Well, I mean, I, a lot of it was out of necessity. I mean, when we first started towing, we were we were learning about rescue rescue. We were learning about our capacity to endure a wipeout. Uh, we, I mean, we, in the beginning, we didn't have even flotation devices, and we had jet skis that, that barely went 30, and the waves were going 30. I mean, we, we, were, we were severely handicapped, and so we, we learned out, we just learned out of necessity, out of, out of trial and error, and, you know, every time you fell, it was a rescue. And, and the fact is, is that we had, you know, up until that point, we had been learning how to rescue ourselves without any flotation or any jet skis or anything. We were, when you go out as a big wave rider, in the, in the conventional terms, you paddle out with a board from the land to the ocean. And when a giant wave knocks your board and takes your board to shore, you're just out there with your surf shorts on, like, okay, I gotta come back to shore. And that's the beginning of water rescue. <laughs> you rescue right. yourself. I mean, at one point we had the fire department say, Somebody goes, hey, what are you guys gonna do if those guys need to be rescued? And they go, well, if they don't rescue themselves, we're not gonna be able to rescue them. You know, I mean, that's, you know, like that's the, that's kind of what's happening. Like you're in a spot where it's like, you know, I think then when you see anybody doing, you know, anything at a certain level, you're pretty much on your own. But what are the processes you put in place for making sure if you do wipe out, uh, that you're as protected as you possibly can be? A combination of a, a, a super tight relationship with your partner. First of all, right away, knowing that the guy will actually come to you and get you in, the, in a critical pl place, which means he's got to put himself on the line. Because he's on the jet ski. That's right. Mm -hmm. So he's, but he's got a risk, because mm -hmm. he could just drive away. And I've had that. 
Oh, you have? Absolutely. I've had my friend just like drive the other way. And I'm like, come and get me, I'm gonna drown. What was the It was situation? just the nature of the situation that he was fearing for himself. And he wasn't, he didn't have the capacity to override that and just put himself on the line. Uh, and which, and you don't know, you don't know uh, who those people are, who the, who the people are that won't or will until you get in that situation. And in that instance, when your friend goes the other way, what are you thinking? You'll have a different relationship after that for a long time. Maybe never the same. You'll like him, he'll be a friend of yours, but you won't look at him the same. What did you guys discuss right after? Uh, it was almost undis undiscussable. It was almost, because you, you can't get him to undo what he did. And so once he did that, it was, I was incapable of, of, of trusting him again, like in that way. And so that just kind of created a, it just made our relationship what, what normal friendships are like. This really, it's pretty superficial because you never really get tested because you're not out hunting with your buddy and not trying, the animal's not trying to eat you and he flies in and spears the thing when it's trying to bite you and you know, you learn like you're my best friend. But I have friends that I've gained, you know, I have other guys that I have that have come in that weren't really friends of mine and put themselves on the line and I'm like, yeah, you're my buddy and you'll always be my friend for the rest of my life even if I don't relate to you like I did to the other guy that didn't pick me up. So, you know, but first of all, the trust in one another, having a teamwork when you get in these bigger conditions, um, be physically fit, that you're physically in a, and have the capacity to be able to endure the wipeout. Because everybody can make, a, can, every great surfer can catch a wave and ride it and make it. It's who can take the beating, you know, who can make a mistake and wipe out and take the pounding and then come up and do it again. That's the more difficult part of it. When you're surfing a big wave, describe what you're seeing and how it feels. Well, you know, riding a wave in a way is the ultimate improv because it's never the same twice, even at the same place. Every wave is so uniquely different and you're always trying to, you know, it's a unique thing where you're, where you observe what's in front of you and that tells you what's behind you. When you come down on that wave and all the water drops down and starts to go like that in front, you can see the water kind of draining down and almost going subterranean. You know that behind you is a giant wall that's just rising and that it's gonna be falling. And you just, you know, you can, like any time I've ever been blown up, you know, like had the wave land near me and explode me, I knew it was coming. I, I can feel it. I just felt like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get destroyed. And that's only by understanding what was happening in front of me. If the water is starting to come up where, you know, it seems likely the wave's gonna crash on you, is there a way at that point when it's already that late to get out of it? Not normally. Okay. There's normally not a way to get out of it. It's just to minimize the effects. So you try to reduce your chances of really getting annihilated by either not being directly where the wave is gonna land or to penetrate in a way that you're not gonna get. You know, I've learned some techniques over the years about how to reduce, you know, the impact. You know, there's a certain blast zone. If you can take all your speed and get outside of the blast zone, you know, then you'll, you have a better chance of, of, of surviving uh, it without, with, you know, with minimal carnage. What do you think about when surfing? When you're actually riding a wave? Nothing but riding the wave. Not a thing. Except just that you're there and you're in this, you're in this act. You're, you're in this thing. You, you actually kind of become part of it. I think that's the, the, the amazing part of riding a wave is you become connected to it. You become part of, of this bigger thing and you're just with it. And you know it's it's a uh, you know we never say we we conquer it we just we we can act harmoniously with it when everything's optimum you are there's a harmony that you have with it and and that's uh, that's the objective is for you to be in the harmonious flow of 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 the wave and you know surfers really are water readers that's what we really are that's what takes us the longest to do is to understand what the water is going to do to look at the water and know what it's doing, where it's going, why, what, how it's gonna affect you. That's what the, that's where the real skill takes him. Cause you're riding the board and paddling and I mean that, these are all skills, but these are not the skills that take a lifetime like 
looking at the water and understanding what it's going to do. If you know you're going to have a great surf the next day, there are going to be big waves. I understand you can't really get quality sleep the, the night before. How are you mentally preparing, if at all? Well, you, you see yourself making it. You see yourself completing, completing the rides, making, making the rides. And sometimes there's a battle between you seeing yourself making it and then you envisioning what will happen if you don't make it. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, how, That's how, what keeps you up all night. <laughs> how like, granular and intricate will you get in the simulation of it when you're thinking about it? Pretty granular because you, you can see yourself just getting exploded into, like, you know, into, the, uh, into the air. But what about the flip side of that when you're you know you surf it well, well. yeah I mean, you'll see you... you'll see you'll see the turns you'll see the you'll see the line that you're you're you know that you're drawing and again you, you'll observe it not from outside of it but from in it that you observe it from in it in what ways is it almost an emotional letdown after you get finished riding a big wave well we learned early on about post-traumatic you get post-traumatic from from big wave riding like you do any intense situation whether it's post-traumatic from the olympics or post-traumatic from war or or and i wouldn't compare mine to you know my post-traumatic to a war but i can compare it to being threatened and 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 being at a high a level of focus and and a height of awareness that there's only one way to go after that is down and you get depressed post-traumatic i call it post-traumatic big wave syndrome we've had it for years and once we became aware of it then we started combating it, but in the beginning we'd indulge ourselves in it and just get like, turn into a, you know, a, a bear out of a den. Just not too happy. Like in what ways would you get depressed? Just self-destructive, just, just, just negative. Just everything got negative. Just started to, to, to go down after that height, you know, after that, after that, uh, you know, that, that pinnacle of, of uh, focus, you know, that the amount of energy and the amount of focus it took, part of it is you're exhausted. Once the, the guards let up and you go, okay, you're safe, you're back on land, then everything just collapses. It's like the body goes, oh yeah, okay, I'm, you know, you, you, you demanded so much out of me, now I got none left. How would you combat it? Uh, I'd combat it through nutrition, you know, uh, rest, you know, get work, get massage, just just anything to nurture the system. Um, injuries. Uh, what happened once when you were out surfing and you punctured your cheek with the surfboard? Yeah, I got speared in the face by a huge board that I that uh, that I had built for riding Jaws. First, doing stand up paddling at at Jaws, uh, which is where you stand on the board with a paddle and you paddle and you catch the waves. But I, I was out on an extremely windy day on Maui and uh, the board flew and speared me right through the cheek behind my teeth, but you know, below my temple. And I mean, it was, it was a fortunate thing where it did spear me, but it, it, I told someone it was the first time I couldn't really hold my breath because the air just, you know, went out. But, uh, but I had a nice hole right through my face. And, uh, and then I caught, a, I caught another wave and then came in and- Right, you, but you caught another wave. Absolutely, <laughs> always. When you can. I broke my collarbone at Jaws and rode a couple waves after, but it was, that was painful. And w uh, why do you make the decision to do that? So that you end in a completion, that you end completing it, that you, when you finished, you, you, you finished. You don't finish on a negative, you finish on a positive. And I think it's important, it, you know, the old cliche, you know, get back on the horse. It's, it's for a reason that they made that saying up. <laughs> Uh, off the top of your head, uh, all the injuries you've had over the years, name as many as you can recall. Uh, I, I mean, I can start from the bottom up, like you know, slip toe, broken metatarsals, broken arch, seven or eight broken ankles, uh, ACLs, um, more than a thousand stitches with no operations until that point. Uh, broken collarbone, separated ribs, uh, broken hand, broken fingers, uh, AC separation on the shoulder, uh, couple other slip discs, like uh, slip vertebrae from jumping off a cliff. Yeah, yeah, it just goes on. Do you have constant day-to-day -day pain? Um, I don't. 
I don't. I think I attribute that a lot to my diet and my lifestyle. I don't have I don't have day to day pain. I should probably if if I, uh, you know, I, I replaced my hip last year. Um, that was pretty painful, uh, and and only when I walked. So you know, <laughs> only sore when I walked. But of all the injuries, what's been the most painful? I mean, my broken ankles were bad because I walked on them. So the pain lasted a long time because I just kept walking on them. Um, and I had compound. That was, that was, pretty, that was uh, pretty painful. And didn't you duct tape them or duct tape the ankle? Well, I cut the cast off because I'd go surf on it. And then I, and then I duct tape, yeah, duct tape the wound because I had a wound. So instead of keeping the cast on like you're yeah, supposed well, duct tape, to, yeah, you well, duct tape's cut it off and anyway, just yeah. uh, duct, tape it. duct taped it. Yeah, somehow that How was that gonna work? support it. And is that the Yeah, that's ankle? this one, yeah. And that arch has been broken, all those metatarsals. And I had a bunch, six or seven breaks separately, not just one time. When they're done with this, I, want them to, I don't want there to be any recycling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. How do you view age? I, I think age is a mentality. I think it's a mentality. I think it's a decision. I think we decide if, if we're old or not. I see young guys deciding that they're old. I see old guys deciding they're young. I think you decide if you're old. I, I don't, I think at a certain point you go, oh, you're old, this and that. I go, yeah, but I think you're succumbing to that. I think it's a, I think it's a, a disclaimer for people wanting to stop. And the decision to start acting in a certain way. Yeah, or just, or not. A decision just to get out, to not have to do, take the effort to, do what it takes to keep going. People get tired. Life's long. Like they get tired of it. They're just like, hey, I'm just tired. I don't wanna I don't wanna have to just keep going. It's work, you know? I mean it's effort. You gotta put effort in. But the option is is that you don't get to do all this stuff. You know, there's a saying what you that you know, you can never have too much fun. And I go, Yeah, but they per they they forgot to tell you you just have to be in really good shape to do it. You can never have too much fun, but you gotta have, be in really good shape to do it. Because fun takes work, takes effort. At least the sustainable fun, the, the kind I'm talking about, my fun. My fun, you gotta be in shape for my fun. If, you, if you're not, you're done, it's over. Your parents, um, why have you called your mom your biggest influence of your life? Just because of the kind of person she was. My mom was very supportive uh, of me, even though she was disappointed. Uh, with my choices to, you know, not pursue uh, higher education. I think that was, that was kind of one of the things that disappointed her. But I mean, my mom worked, you know, 16 hour days, six days a week and somehow managed to feed us and clothe us and, you know, amazing person. How much, if at all, did you struggle with that disappointment that she had? Well, I'd like to say I struggled more. I probably should have, but I didn't struggle at all because I wanted to serve. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, mom, I'm really disappointed. I'm, I'm sorry I disappointed you, but I'm going to be a little busy over here. <laughs> Your biological dad. Yeah. Um, what do you know about the circumstances that led to him walking out before your first birthday? You know, I don't know a lot, a lot uh, other than he wanted to be a merchant marine. I don't think he was ready to, you know, be a, a dad, I think that probably scared him, and so he ran away. How much resentment did you have? Um, well, it was hard to have resentment because he was non-existent. So it's a little hard to be resentful when you don't even see him, hear him, don't even know him. Uh, but as you get older and you start to understand what... Yeah, well, I think as I get older and older, I sympathize. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> more, you know, when you're 21 or 22, you have, you're kind of idealistic, and then you're more like you know, how come they, they weren't there and why didn't they help my mom and all that. But listen, it's a domestic, man. It's between two people. So when you see a domestic, it's like it's between a man and a woman and who knows what that was. You know, I, I think that the, the burden it put on my mom was difficult uh, because she had to try to support me, uh, you know, and, and, and but I pursued finding him. I found him. I met him. I had a meal with him, and then I was when good. you were twenty-one. Yeah. Why? And because I was curious. The... I was curious who he was and what he was. Who are you? Like, who are you and what are you? I'd like to know. I'd like to know what you are. You know, maybe that'll help me know who I am. And and uh, and what I realized at that moment is that that you need to have experiences. 
at, at the end that you can be genetically related to people that you have no experiences with and you really don't have a relationship and you can not be related to people and have experiences with them and have a real relationship and that's why adoption works because at the end it's all about the people there that are there for you that that you live with that you really no matter how you're related blood uh, what did you talk about at the breakfast you know it was a light conversation because i wasn't prepared to like hey walking you weren't there and this and that right and he wasn't indulging me in that it wasn't like well i did that you know it was it was a little bit more like meet and greet and kind of more interested in like hey what kind of person are you but we just really didn't have a lot to talk about because we didn't have a lot of experiences together and and uh and and i wasn't ready to you know at that time go into trying to you know develop a relationship with him it was more like i needed to answer this question this curiosity uh and i did that why decide to never see him again after that i think it really didn't it just came out of the, the lack of effort it was going to take it wasn't like he was down the road and you could just stop by and say hey how you doing it was like it was a it was a commitment he lived somewhere else and it was like you know i was going to have to and he didn't i did he wasn't reaching out making any commitment and so you know it, it's again it takes two you know it takes two to tangle and he passed away when you were 41 yeah. um explain how you introduced your mom to her new husband or your stepdad yeah. yeah well i i didn't have a dad and i was a young kid running around and i needed a dad i wanted a dad especially at three or you know three years old and i was like hey i need a dad and i saw a guy that you know i wanted to be my dad and i think i did me i think they already were in cahoots but the fact is is that i saw him and introduced him to my mom i brought him home and and, and he saw my mom and he was like okay kid get out of the way i think i like you know <laughs> i think i like your mom but uh but yeah that was it's a rare thing that you know you can say oh i introduced my dad to my mom but but i did it and and you know and and uh he just represented a guy that i that i thought would be like what my dad would be like if i had a dad and he was only 14 years your senior uh why do you think the two of you had a tumultuous relationship I just think it's like older brother, younger brother. I think we were like more like brothers, 14 years apart, but super competitive with each other. And uh, males, just two bulls in a field and young bull and the old bull. And I'm just, you know, I want my own field. And, you know, he's like, get out of my field. And so I think it was just, I think it's a pretty natural thing. I think it's more natural in my opinion to have a little bit of tension and clash between the males. You know, I mean, listen, he took on, being a, a father when he, he was 17 years old. He, I mean, he had to be emancipated. It was like, it wasn't, that was a big responsibility. It was one that my real dad ran from. So <laughs> the fact is, is that he gets, he was pretty, you know, pretty tough to be able to deal with that. I, I give him credit. Our, my mom was really hot. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, at, at the same time though, he did, I mean, he punched you in the face. Yeah. He yeah, hit yeah. you with a pipe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how often would he physically hurt you? As often as I deserved it was probably daily. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was pretty radical. I wasn't exactly uh, tame, you know, and I hadn't been, I hadn't grown up kind of coming into a disciplinary situation. I had been just trying to find the boundaries and being defiant. And so, um, you know, I, I, listen, w I won't say I deserved uh, a lot of it, but I deserved a lot of what I got. I think I was just trying to find out where the limit was. The fact is he was just young and, and didn't have a lot of control over his temper and had a wicked temper. So it just, it was like a bad combination of a good flame and a lot of fuel. What, what was the worst he hurt you? Uh, he hit me with a pipe one time and paralyzed me for a little while. I laid on the ground paralyzed. That was probably the most intense thing that happened. What were you thinking when you were on the ground? Well, after I was on the ground, he took this thing called an Oho bar, which is like a giant steel pipe full of, it's all solid. It looks like a, a drilling rod. And he threw it at this outhouse because we had an outhouse and he threw it at the door and the outhouse flew against the door and then shot back and hit him in the head and knocked him down. And that was when I was on the ground. And I just thought, somebody's watching out for me. <laughs> but it laid him down. It laid him down cold on the ground. And uh, I... Yeah, I just, I think that's when I learned, learned cause and effect. <laughs> what were the emotions when he walked out? 
knowing that your biological dad many years earlier had you know done something similar I think I was I was feeling like I was I you know that I got let down that that I was uh, I was disappointed you know I was disappointed that that uh, and maybe maybe that's where my admiration for my mom came from that you know that it was the men would always leave and you know my mom would be there for me and that was kind of like I had respect for her for that you know it, I think that 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 influence and what that's done to me to make me uh, try to be the man that I am is insurmountable. Like I don't think I could, I don't think I could ever uh, probably thank him enough for helping me learn how I wanted to be and, and how I didn't want to be. And unfortunately, I think as a parent, sometimes the lessons of how not to be are m more, uh, <laughs> have more impact than how to be. And so I, I just decided, you know, I, I decided I'd never wanted to be like that. I never wanted to do that. So I've, and I've tried to do that as best I can. What kind of relationship do you guys have today? We actually have a relationship, yeah. It's, it's, I think a big part of it's been for him to get to a certain place. You know, my mom was always about forgiveness. I think you just, you have to, you know, you hope they forgive you and you should forgive them. Um, all right, Gabby. Yeah, queen, uh, the queen. The queen. What do you remember from the first time meeting her when she traveled to Hawaii to film an episode of a TV show she was hosting with you? You know, when I first met her, the, I just thought, here we go, another, you know, another bimbo, like, here we go, like, what kind of dumb questions am I gonna get asked? And, you know, is this just a pretty girl? Like, okay, put the pretty girl on the show and she'll be the host and she'll interview you and then, and then, you know, she was so intelligent. And, and after the first conversation, I was, I was, I was enthralled. I was, I was like, wow, this is a, a, a very interesting person, like a, something amazing. And, uh, you know, that's why I said it was, for, it, was, it was love at first conversation, not first sight. How do you go from that to eight days later, picking up, leaving Hawaii, moving to LA to live with her? Instinct, my instincts told me, you know, this is real, this is a real thing, do something. And being a big wave rider, that's what we do. <laughs> we commit, we commit, you know, we see the opportunity, it was an opportunity, it was like the only way we can be together and know if, is if we do something. I was in a, in a, in a terrible position in, in the relationship I was in, I had a new baby. I was like living in a barn. I was like, it was completely a debacle. And I mean, that's why I was gonna yeah. bring that up too. Yeah. I mean, because you were married yeah. at the time. Absolutely. You had a young kid. I did, I do. And all of I a sudden, a yeah. you yeah. leave Hawaii and yeah. move eight yeah. days later to live with somebody. Yeah. Um, so what's the like decision making. making process like at that moment for you? Selfishness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, looking back, what, if anything, would you do differently? No, not a thing. I wouldn't change one thing that I've done or been through just because I wouldn't want to jeopardize the chance that I'm not here now. <laughs> how did your ex-wife handle it at the time? Not well, not well, but she was already she was already my ex-wife at that point. It was just, it was just gonna be, it was just a matter of the, you know, the details. It was already, the thing, the thing was over. And, and uh, I mean, at the end, I got my daughter from that, you know, that situation. I have, my, I have Bella, Bella's a, you know, a beautiful girl and I, I wouldn't change one, one bit of it. And there was um, an interesting quote from a profile done on you a while back that I wanted to read to you. Um, and just get your reaction. In uh, January 2001, uh, Gabby gave Laird a fright no wave ever could, and she filed for divorce. Uh, appeared spe spectacularly naked on the cover of Playboy and attracted a mob of fans while shooting dice at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas with Charles Barkley and Tiger Woods. What are you thinking as all this is going on? 
I'm thinking that doesn't matter where she looks. It's, it's <laughs> she's not going to find what, what she has already. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, that, and honestly, that's what I'm thinking. And, and, and the fact is, is that, that whatever was going on with us, I was equally, I was equally at fault for. Part of the reason why she was there or doing that or whatever was happening was because of what I'd been doing too. So I'm taking, I took responsibility for my side of things and just started to work on that. Like I just needed to focus on, hey, what, it, what am I doing uh, that's having an, an impact on this relationship like that? What did you find when you were like self-reflecting at the time that you needed to work on? I think my attitude was, uh, I was a little, uh, maybe not appreciating, maybe not appreciating it, maybe just a little self-destructive on my own, a little, so, little self, little like how so, little, little, little too much Pinot Noir maybe or something, you know, just, just self-destructive, you know, driving fast, you know, a little reckless, little jumping off high cliffs, just my, my kind of my, uh, my go-to, you know, throw all the chairs out the window, kind of thing, you know. Really? <laughs> Tell me if I uh, heard this wrong, but were you, you were drinking like two bottles of wine a night? Yeah, but that's, I could during? do that with my eyes closed. I could drink a couple bottles of wine every single night, wake up at five o'clock and train for five hours and ride giant waves and do that for years on end. But the residual effect of that on my family and my friends is not productive. I mean, the, uh, the thing with Gabby was had to do more with me not me not being okay than it did for me not being okay for her. You know what I mean? It was more like, hey, what it, you know, it's hard to be with somebody who doesn't want to be with themselves. And, uh, and that's where a whole like set of circumstances come in that, that eventually brings Gabby back. Why do you think after all these years, the relationship's been able to work? I respect Gabby as a partner, as a friend, I think well, one reason is is that I always, she always, I keep her as that she's my, my uh, girlfriend. She's the mother of my children, but she's my girlfriend. She's my babe. She's my chick, and that doesn't change. She can be the mother of five kids, ten kids. She's my, she's my, my girl, my my, my lover, and I go, and that's, that's important. Uh, your personality. Uh, I want to take you way back uh, to when you had a rival windsurfer. Yeah. Who walks on a porta potty. Yeah. What do you do? Trap him in with a truck, pound on it, maybe turn the porta potty over or something. Just, you know, grind on him a little bit. What do you mean, or something? You have to remember that. Or right? just knock the porta potty over. I think you got it. Yeah. It was a completely full porta potty. It was a porta, yeah, with purple juice. <laughs> what happened? I think he was pretty messy. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little puffy chested, and so we had to bring him down a little bit, you know, dethrone yeah. him, dethrone him. How does or how has anger motivated you? I've used it as a driving force for a long time. You know, especially when I was younger. Now it's changed a little bit, quite a bit, completely actually. How? Don't use it as a, as a, as a, as a tool to, to push me. Now I use other things, other, other mental states, but not anger. I don't use anger as a, as a driving force. When I grew up, when I was younger, I used that as driving force. Part of it was just self-defense. It was, it was more out of just out of defending myself that anger was a good tool to, and I could use it to, to perform as well. But not anymore. No, I haven't. I, no, because it's not productive. It's not sustainable. You can do it when you're young, when you're trying to come up. You can, when you're coming up and you have to kind of knock walls down and run into people to kind of make room for yourself, you can get away with that. But it's not a sustainable attitude. You have to, you know, there's, there's too, many, too much cause and effect. You start to realize that the, the impact, the, the negative impact of using that consistently, it's not worth the... It's not worth the, you know, the emotion. You got to shift the gear. How true is it that you've broken both of your hands on doors instead of hitting a people? A face. Yeah, it's true. I had I beat some Olympic 
what an Olympic something, some guy in an arm wrestling thing, and then he he had his thugs, and they were gonna, and we were gonna fight, and instead I just punched, I just broke my hands on the door because I didn't want to fight. At least the door is fine, and I can just my hands will. Yeah, you but know, you have two busted hands. I know, but they'll get better. More productive than me hitting somebody. Um, so I talked to some of your friends, uh, they're great. Thank uh, you. And also um, more than open. Um, but with regards to your personality, yeah. um, one friend told me he thinks you're bipolar. Um, another said he thinks you have a low-grade form of, of Asperger's. Yeah. Um, your, Absolutely. Your thoughts? On those? Yeah. I mean, I think some of those are, my favorite is that I think we have abbreviated abbreviations for all these normal, actual human kind of behavioral traits that are, work really good when we're hunting and gathering. You know, they've worked for millions of years, that's why we have them. They, now in this modern society and culture, they're not so great, right? They don't fit in because you can't just, you don't sit in the corner and obey all the rules and everything. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever I have, is working. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think? Whatever I have is working. Do you think there's any? Is, is there any truth? To, I probably have a little of everything. I would think something. I, I mean, I think I'm pretty. Uh, I mean, I call it a terrier. You know how a terrier is? When you let a terrier go and it goes after something, it just it'll tear the wall to get. I used to have this rat terrier that ripped my cleaning lady's car entirely apart to try to get something that was in the motor. So. Do I have a certain aspect of that where I just do not let go of something and just will, I absolutely, I think that's the one of the things that's allowed me to be able to do what I've been able to do. You know, it's, it's we all have these different traits. It's how do you survive with them and where, how do you use them? You know, I think there's a certain percentage of high level CEOs that all have some Asperger's and some, you know, have different, have different, traits that make them extremely good at what they do. And I mean, can, but can you still have a family and have a relationship and have friends and, you know, catch airplanes and live in society? I mean, you know, I'm able to actually survive in, you know, in the, in the, in, in the way our, our culture's set up and, and yet still have some of these traits that benefit me, you know, when I'm out in the giant ocean and so on. I mean, I know at one point when I was going to school, they, they thought I should see a psychiatrist. So they sent me to the psychiatrist and said, hey, you know, you gotta come see Laird. And you know, it took me about three visits to the psychiatrist and him and I were like this, me and the psychiatrist, we were like best friends, right? And so he went back to the school board and said, there's nothing wrong with Laird. He just gets bored. And they go, oh, well, that's not what we wanted to hear. <laughs> and they wanted to get me on Ritalin or something. But the fact is, and my mom was like, there's no way in the world. But, but, you know, I think sometimes when you have that kind of energy and that kind of drive, I think that scares people. They want to go, oh yeah, you're good. something's wrong with you. You know, we need to do something to, to calm you down and you stay over there and sit in the corner. And I, I just think it's, you know, it's just, it just has to do with energy. It has to do with being be male. Along those lines, Gabby has said before, he knows he hurts people and he just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, well, in, 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 in regards to what particular thing? Just your personality. Although, having said that, I was talking to Gabby yeah. earlier this morning, and she said, while I may have said that before, he's also changed a lot. Yeah, I think some of the, the, the fact when somebody goes, oh, he'll hurt somebody and he doesn't care, I think that's also connected to the fact that that's what's also allowed me to not care what people think that's what's allowed me to do a lot of things I've done because I didn't let their influence affect me because I continued to pursue it even when people go, that's stupid, you're stupid, that's lame, why would you do that? And I would just keep, and that's the same part of that, the negative side, the bright light, dark shadow, but the side of that, which is that, that yeah, sometimes I, that I do have an ability to not care what the, what the people think. If they don't really care about me or about what I'm doing, then I have no concern for sure, absolutely. I think that's part of, that's part, but that also gives me an ability to be extremely forgiving. How does life for you today compare to what you would have thought it would be as a kid growing up? Well, I, I think I'm right where I wanna be. 
I think that I, I think I have a life that I that I have a family and that I and that I'm at a, in a in a place where uh, I have people that I like. I have friends that I like. I'm happy with the life I have, and it's and it reflects me and it reflects what I would hope for. And I continue to push. I think it'll always be something that that's a continual pursuit that doesn't end. But I'm I don't think I've ever been in a better mental position in my life than I am right now. Just the relations, no, regardless of what's happening in, you know, with all everything in life, there's always stuff going on. But just my mental state of where I'm at, my health, you know, my family, just all the, all the, my relationship with Gabby, it's like the friends that I have, this, all the, all the work stuff. It's just all, it's, it's in, it's, it's, it's in a nice place. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Laird Hamilton. You can see much more of our visit to Kauai, including surfing, paddleboarding, and a freezing dunk in an ice bath at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. <laughs>